Well, turn to the book of Nehemiah, if you will. And if you don't have a, a Bible, would like to borrow one, uh, you can slip your hand up and somebody will, will bring one to you. Book of Nehemiah. I've been preaching through the book of Nehemiah. That's what we like to do is just kind of preach through different books of the Bible. Uh, we're now in Nehemiah chapter 8, and we'll be reading verses 9 through 18. Nehemiah chapter 8. Starting in verse 9. Let's pray before we read. Father, we just uh, look to you again today and ask you for help as we open the Bible. Father, we know this book is an incredibly important book. It teaches us about you. It teaches us about Jesus. It teaches us about the way of salvation. Father, we thank you for it. Father, we know men, women, children have, have died. I'm trying to uh, bring this book around the globe. We know, Father, um, it's in this book where we know truth. And Lord, apart from your word, we can't truly know truth. And so, Lord, uh, we just ask for your help as we open this. We believe the same God who gave us this book needs to open our hearts so that we might comprehend it. So we pray, Father, for your grace this morning. Pray for your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and our minds. So pray, Father, you'd, you'd push away distractions from this room, those things that would keep us from listening to your word. And I pray you'd give us understanding in your word so that we might be changed. The Bible says in 1 Peter that we are born again through the seed of the Word of God. We're born again through hearing and believing this Word. So Lord, we just ask that You would cause Your Word today to be power and to be life for us. And we thank You for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying be quiet for this day is holy do not be grieved and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them on the second day the heads of fathers houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. 
Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. All right, a little background now for what's going on there. Uh, we, we are now in the second and final major section of the book of Nehemiah. The first part of this book was all about rebuilding a wall. 150 years or so before Nehemiah, the, man, the main man in this book, 150 years before he was born, the Babylonians had invaded Israel. They had destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They had dragged the Jewish people into exile. 900 miles away from Israel, but God later opened the door for the Jews to return to Israel. And at the start of this book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah and other exiles returned to Israel to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. And they did it. Uh, They finished um, in chapter 6 of this book. But even though the wall there in Jerusalem is now finished, Nehemiah task there in Jerusalem is not finished because Nehemiah did not just go to Jerusalem to rebuild a wall. He also went there to renew a people. The second part of the book, which we're now in. First, the the rebuilding of a wall and second now, the renewing of a people. The Jews at this time in history, now the wall's been built and there they are. But these people are still a mess. At this point in time, coming out of exile, they, they, they still didn't really know the laws of God in the Bible. They, they were struggling to reestablish the, the worship in the temple there in Jerusalem. They were a mess. And God will now use this man, Nehemiah, to revive these people. What we see now from chapter 8 to the end of this book, is a spiritual revival, a spiritual renewal of these people. This is what a revival is. A revival is simply when God breathes new life into His people. You know, in the Bible, if you read through the Bible, there there are multiple places where God revives His people people. His people at different times, they had become complacent in their relationship with him and and in their mission to to the world. They had become spiritually lethargic and and lazy and and apathetic, a a spiritual declension or decline of some sort. And and God then breathed new life into them. He stirred them up. He he re-energized them. He reanimated them multiple times in the Bible where God does this spiritual revival among his people. And listen, after the Bible was written in later history, well, God has revived his people many other times. 
bringing spiritual renewal to individuals around the world or, or bringing spiritual renewal to, to, to whole churches or, or to whole towns or even whole countries as in the great awakening in, in America. Just a massive revival, God breathing new life into people in, in this country. And listen, we desperately need revival today. We need revival in, in, in churches all over the world. We need revival here in, in this church. We are our church. We are complacent in, in some ways in our relationship with God and in our mission to, to this world. We are lethargic in some ways. We are, we are entangled with the cares of, of this life to some degree. All churches are to some degree. And we need God to breathe life into this church. That is one thing I pray for regularly for our church, that God would bless us with a spiritual revival. He would energize us. He would help us to throw off the cares of this life, and we would serve him. We'd go joyfully on a mission to the world. May God give us this spiritual revival. And in this final section of Nehemiah here, from chapter 8 to the end, what we see here is a revival. We see what a true biblical spiritual revival looks like. We see here in these chapters several key elements of every true revival. And right here in chapter 8, we see one of the primary elements of every true revival, and that is the Word of God, the Scriptures. In every true revival in human history, the Bible has played a central role. And we see it here in Nehemiah 8. At the start of Nehemiah 8, which we looked at last Sunday, God wanted to breathe new life into his lethargic people there in Jerusalem. So what did he do? Well, he had somebody preach the word to them. This man Ezra showed up, and Ezra stood on a high platform there in Jerusalem. He was surrounded by the people, Nehemiah 8 says. Commentators estimate there were thirty to 50,000 people around Ezra this day in Jerusalem, and Ezra then read to them from, from, from morning to midday from the book of of the law. And those are the first five books in the Bible. Ezra read scripture to those people there in Jerusalem. And a group of Levites who were in the crowd of people, well, they then went around through the crowd and they explained the scriptures to the people. Because it's not just a matter of hearing them. You have to understand them. So they went through the crowd and explained the scriptures to the people so the people could understand. And now in the passage we're looking at here today, these people now, as they are standing, now just picture, they're standing still around Ezra as he's reading the scriptures to them the first five books of the Bible, and as they're there hearing and understanding the word, they now begin to experience two very intense and powerful emotions. And you can find both of these emotions in every true revival in human history. We'll look at the emotions one at a time here. The first emotion these people experience as they're sitting or listening to the Word of God, the first emotion is sorrow. Verse 9 says that as these people heard the words of the law, all the people wept 
In the Hebrew there, the word there could be translated as wept bitterly, intensely, grievously. 30 to 50,000 people sobbing as they listen to the Word of God. And, and picture, picture a tragedy maybe in, in our world where somebody dies suddenly and all the people then express this raw and just open anguish, this, these loud cries, the, 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 the tears. This is a deep sorrow from these people around this platform today. And why? Why this sorrow here as the, these people heard God's Old Testament law being read? Well, I think they had just seen their sin. That right there is one of the primary functions of God's law. The, 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 the book of the law, the, the first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, one of the primary functions of God's law is to reveal sin. To show us how sinful we are. Romans 3.20, if you throw that up, it says this. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God's law in the Bible, first five books, gives you knowledge of your own sin. It shows you how sinful you are. You know, in those first five books of the Bible, in that law section, God, God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. God gave those books to him. God, God, God gave Moses there um, all of these laws that God wanted people to obey. God, God gave all these commands or, or, or rules. The, the Ten Commandments or the moral law and also all of these other commandments. But listen... <laughs> Even when God gave those laws to Moses on Mount Sinai, God knew we weren't going to keep the laws. Why? Because we're sinners. <laughs> because we're sinners. All of us, the, the Bible says. And God knew that sinners would not fully obey His laws. So, so why did God give us those laws then? If He knew we weren't going to obey them fully, here's one of the main reasons God gave them to us so we could see our sin. So we could see the depth of the fallenness in, in our own hearts. And that's a helpful thing. Because listen, by nature, we don't see ourselves as sinners. <laughs> no, by nature, we all tend to think we're pretty good people. And, and you know why we tend to think we're pretty good people? Here's why. Because we compare ourselves with one another. <laughs> and I look out and I say, man, I, I'm definitely better than, better than this guy over here. And, and oh, they're definitely better than him, man. That dude's a mess over there. Man, I'm better than 90% of these people. I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, and we walk around thinking like that. But here's the problem. Our standard for goodness is not other people. Our standard for goodness is God's perfect, holy law. And as soon as you see yourself against the standard of God's perfect, holy law, you don't look all that good anymore. It was a woman who saw a white sheep walking through a grass field. 
And the woman said, wow, look how white that sheep looks out in that green grass. And then it started to snow. And the background became white. And she said, wow, look how, look how dirty that sheep looks out in that white field. It's the same sheep. It's a different background. And when we compare ourselves against other people, we look clean. You compare yourself against God's white and holy law. You don't look all that clean anymore. There's, a, there's, a, uh, there's an evangelist, Ray Comfort. And he uses the law very effectively in order to share the gospel of Christ. He, he walks up, I've seen many videos of him doing this, he's pretty good at it. He walks up, engages people on the street just from all different walks of life, and at some point he'll say, hey, w- would you consider yourself to be a good person? And how many people do you think say yes to that question? It's probably 99.8% of the people say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I consider myself to be a good person. I'm not perfect, no, but, but I'm pretty good. And then Ray says, well, hey, can I ask you a couple other questions? And then Ray just asks about a couple of the Ten Commandments. Well, have you ever, you ever told a lie before? Even a white lie. Well, yeah, I, I have. Well, have you ever stolen anything? And be careful because you just said you lie, so I don't know if I can believe you. <laughs> and the person says, yeah, you know, I've stolen candy, a pen, whatever, stolen something. Have you ever looked at another human being and, and lusted sexually after that person in your heart? Well, yeah, I've done that. Have you ever been angry with someone? Hated another person in your heart. Yeah, I've done that. And he then says, you may not know this, but I just asked you about four of the Ten Commandments in the Bible, and you just said you've broken all of them. You've lied. You've stolen. And Jesus calls lust adultery, and he calls hatred murder. So I asked you earlier if you're a good person, and you said yes, but you know what? Against God's commandments, against his holy law... You're really not that good in your heart. You're, you're a lying, stealing, murderous adulterer in the eyes of God. And you know why he's doing that? He's trying to prepare them for a Savior. You will never go to the cancer doctor for healing until you know you have cancer. And we will not go to God and cry out for mercy until we know we have a sin cancer that is causing us some serious problems. So he starts with law and puts it up against people so they can see against God's law, you, you, you're not good. And that goes for all of us. All of us have broken God's law. We've all broken God's commandments. In our hearts, we're all lying, stealing, murderous adulterers. We might not have done it with our hands, but we've thought it in our hearts. And God sees the thoughts and intents of the human heart. He sees it. And it's against God's law where your sin is exposed. The book of James says that God's law is like a mirror. And and what does a mirror do for you? Well, a mirror shows you who you really are. 
Man, you wake up in the morning and you go in the bathroom and you flip on the lights and you look in the mirror and you say, oh my word, I'm a mess. <laughs> oh my word, pizza sauce from last night on your cheek. Women with mascara down to here. Uh, men who actually still have hair out to here. Uh, man, I'll tell you, two boys in my home and we got some serious bedhead in the morning in our home. It's amazing how that stuff can stick up. Uh, man, uh, you, 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 the mirror... It shows you your mess. It shows you who you really are. And that's God's law. That's God's law. It's a mirror that comes into your life. And when God turns the lights on, you see who you really are in your heart. That you're not really all that good. You're a violator of God's law. And here's the thing about God's law in the Bible, in those Old Testament books. Man, God's law, it doesn't just reveal your sin. No, God's law in the Bible, it also tells you that because of your sin, you are living under the wrath and curse of God. The Bible says multiple times that the soul that sins will die. And the law just tells you because of your sin, you are living under the, the wrath and curse of, of Almighty God. And if you die in that condition, the Bible's very clear, you'll experience God's just punishment for sin for all eternity. God's law in the Bible, man, when you, when you hear it, when you really hear it, when you read it, you, you, you hear it preached, man, it should produce sorrow in your heart as you begin to see your sin and God's wrath for your sin. And here's the thing. These people here, 30 to 50,000 gathered around this tower now. They've been listening to Ezra read Old Testament law for some six or seven hours. The laws, the commands, the rules of God. And that law has now begin, begun to hit its mark. And these people listening to God's law are now beginning to weep, beginning to, to wail. I think, I think these people here, I think, I think they now understand why they went into exile initially. Why did the Babylonians invade Israel 150 years ago and drag us into captivity? It was our sin. It was our sin that caused the exile. God's law said multiple times if his people sinned regularly against his law, he would send them into exile. And they're hearing his law and they're connecting the dots. It was our sin that sent us into exile. And they weep. A sorrow for sin. And please listen to me. That right there is one of the functions of the entire Bible. All the scriptures Reading the Bible, hearing the Bible, hearing it preached, hearing it, it explained. One thing it can do in your heart at times is produce grief, sadness. As, as you see your sin and the punishment for your sin. But please listen. That sorrow that comes into your heart when you see your sin in the Word, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. That is the very thing that God uses to spark revival in your life. God uses that sorrow that comes through your word, through the word. He uses it to cause you to repent. He uses it to cause you to turn away from your sin and cry out to Him for mercy. 
Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, a godly sorrow leads to repentance. A godly sorrow in the word, oh my word, and it leads you to turn away from your sin and cry to God for mercy. And man, that right there is often the beginning of new life. That's how revival works. In every true revival, in every true revival in human history, there has always been a sorrow for sin that leads people to repent. During the Great Awakening in America, that massive revival in, in America, you know, we think sometimes, I think we think that, that revival would all be happy clappy. <laughs> Man, during the Great Awakening, The people heard the powerful preaching of God's Word from men like George Whitfield and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards, and they wept in repentance. When Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preaching it right out of the Bible, the response in the crowd was so intense, he could not finish. George Marsden said this, The tumult there became too great as the audience was overcome by screaming, moaning, and crying out, What shall I do to be saved? In every true revival in history, there has always been this sorrow for sin which is produced by the Word of God that leads people to repent or turn away from sin, which then leads to more life from God. And listen, we all here today, we all need more life from, from God. All of us do. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, you, you might be here today and you don't yet have any true spiritual life. It's possible. You've, you've never truly seen your sin. You've never really repented, turned away from your sin. You've never really cried out to the one true God for mercy. You're not yet really clinging to Christ in, in faith. And listen, if that's you, if those things have not happened in your life, then, then the Bible says you're still spiritually dead. There, there's no spiritual life in you. There's no true spiritual life in you. Now, you know, you might think that there, there's life in you because you, you, you were baptized, maybe. Or, or maybe because you go to some sort of church services or because you take the Eucharist or you take the Lord's Supper regularly. But listen, if you've never truly repented, you've never turned away from your sin and cried to God for mercy, if you're not clinging to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then the Scriptures say you are spiritually dead. No spiritual life in you whatsoever. So, so if that's you, that, that's okay. But if that's you, then please hear me. You don't need a revival. You don't need to be relifed as if you had life and then you were kind of losing life and you just had to be relifed. No, you need a revival. You you need initial life. You need the God of this universe to, to, to take you away from spiritual deadness and give you spiritual life. You don't need a revival. You need a revival and that's okay. But just be aware that's what you need. Listen, if that's you, you don't have true spiritual life today, here's the good news. 
God can give it to you. God can give it to you. And please hear me. This book is a huge piece of the puzzle when it comes to you receiving new life. I just encourage you. If you're here, you never repented. You don't trust in Christ. I would encourage you, read the Word of God. Read the Bible. Amazing how many people sit in church services week in and week out and don't ever really read the Bible. And please listen, if if you're sitting in church services regularly and you're calling yourself a a, a Christian, but you never ever crack this book here, uh, you, you never really read it, you don't really listen that much when people preach it, you don't really care what's in it, then please hear me, you're, you're, you're probably not a true Christian. You're, you're probably not. This is, this, you know, it's just the way it is. I mean, this is the authority for Christians right here. And if this is not an authority in your life, then how are you a Christian? Jesus is called the Word of God. And if Jesus, who is the Word of God, does truly live in your heart, there will be a natural connection between the Jesus in your heart and this book on your table. Now, I realize we all struggle in the Word at times. That's okay. But if you're never cracking the Word of God and have no interest to do it, there's a good chance you're not truly a Christian. Start reading the Word. Start easy. The book of Mark or John. Start going to services where the Word of God is preached and listen when it's preached. But man, if you do that in your life, get ready because the first thing that often hits you when you read or hear the Bible is sorrow. As you finally begin to see your sin. But man, that sorrow can then lead to repentance and new life. Paul says this, if you throw it up, this is 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul says, for godly grief, godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation. So that's, that's for those of you who might need a revival. You, you don't yet have any spiritual life. Go to the Word and let God work a sorrow in your heart. But listen, if you already do have spiritual life in you, you, you truly have seen your sin. You truly have repented of your sin. You've turned away. You truly have um, begun to cling to Christ in faith. Well, please listen. You still need more spiritual life. You just do. We, we all do. Every Christian does. Because we all have areas where we've grown complacent. We have areas where we're complacent about our relationship with God, are complacent with other believers, are compla- we're complacent in our mission to the world, a spiritual lethargy, a spiritual laziness in our lives. And we need God to breathe new life. We need God to revive us. And once again, this right here is a huge piece of the puzzle. We have to read this thing. We have to hear it when it's proclaimed. We have to listen when it's, it's proclaimed. But, but please listen, if you die back into the Word and you think, okay, I want to get energized here. Please listen to me. One of the first things that might hit you is sorrow. Sorrow, grief, sadness for your sin. And that sorrow leads to a deeper repentance. And it paves the way for more life. Man, sorrow plays a huge part in, in, in salvation. And it is going to play a huge part here in Jerusalem with this revival. 
God brings these people. Well, you know, he wants to revive them. So what does he do? Ezra preaches the word to them. And God begins to show them their sin. And that sorrow will lead to good things. And that's the first emotion we see here as the people hear the word of God is sorrow. The second emotion that people, uh, that, that people um, uh, uh, feel here as they're hearing the word is joy. Man, joy is a central uh, theme in this passage. We, we see here in this passage the words joy or rejoicing. You see them multiple times here. So just remember what's going on, Ezra, the other leaders here, that they, 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 they're reading the law, they see these people weeping as they hear the law, and they then begin to quiet the people. Starting in verse 9, Ezra says three times, do not mourn or weep or grieve. Now why did Ezra say that? Because it was wrong for them to grieve under the preaching of God's law? No. It was right for them to grieve their, their sin. Why then did, did Ezra tell the people here to stop grieving? Here it is. Because this right here was a holy day. A Jewish holy day. Ezra says three times in verses 9 to 11... Do not grieve. Why? For this is a holy day. Okay. (laughs) So what's going on there? This day was somehow set apart for the Jewish people. So, So what's going on there? Here's what's going on. This day right here was the days, was was a day when the Jews celebrated an annual feast or festival. Up in verse 2, if you just glance up there, you'll see that Nehemiah said this day right here was the first day of the seventh month. And in the Jewish calendar, that's the first day of what was called Tishri, the seventh month. And listen, this entire month of Tishri was a very special month for the Jewish people. Back in the Old Testament law in Leviticus 23, God had commanded the Jews a long time earlier, God had commanded them to celebrate in the month of Tishri three different festivals. The first day of Tishri, which is this day right here, the first day of Tishri was the Feast of Trumpets. It was the Jewish New Year, what we now call Rosh Hashanah. On the 10th day of Tishri then, which would be just a few days from this right here, that would be the Day of Atonement, another festival, when the Jewish people would cleanse the temple. And on the 15th through the 21st day of Tishri, that was supposed to be a seven-day festival called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll get to that one in just a second. So, three different festivals the Jews were supposed to celebrate here in this month of Tishri. And this first day where they're weeping and mourning right here, this is the Feast of Trumpets, the Jewish New Year. But here's the thing. 
Here's the thing about these three festivals that the Jews were supposed to celebrate in the month of Tishri. God's law said that these feast days should be days of gladness. Days of rejoicing. Yes, there would be solemn occasions during these feast days. They would fast at times. But overall, these feast days were supposed to be times of joy, not times of weeping and grieving. Deuteronomy 12.12 said that the people on these feast days should rejoice before the Lord their God. So it was appropriate here for, for the people to weep when they heard the law and they saw their sin. It was appropriate for them to weep. But because this was a feast day, now it is also appropriate for the people to rejoice. Look what Ezra says again in verse 10. Tells him not to grieve. And then he says, go your way. Eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. It's a holy day. It's a holy day, people. It's New Year's Day. (laughs) And you don't weep and mourn all day on New Year's Day. It's time for you to party. Go home and rejoice. Amen. The the people here, they get it. They understand why Ezra is telling them to stop grieving. Look at verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to sin portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. (laughs) It's like these people now, 30 to 50,000, like, oh, this is a holy day. We didn't know that. It's a feast day. Wow, that's really cool. Let's go home and let's, let's have a party. Joy. Joy. You go from grief to gladness, sorrow to joy. And this joy here, it'll now just continue through the rest of the chapter. Nehemiah says in verse 13 that on the second day of the month, so this is now the next day, all the fathers of the families got back together with Ezra to study the law again. And they liked it the first day when he was up there preaching. So now all the fathers of the families get with him again to hear him preach or to to study the law with Ezra again. And look at verse 14, what happens here now on the second day. And they found it written now in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. And, and what, the, what the, these fathers had just found here with Ezra, written in the Word of God, they had just found instructions concerning the third festival in Tishri. Tishri. The, the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of, of Booths. And this Feast of Booths was supposed to start now in just two weeks. And they run into the Word and they see, oh man, we're supposed to do something here for the Feast of Booths. We're supposed to make all of these temporary shelters and we're supposed to live in these shelters for seven days during this festival. God had commanded that back in His Word, Leviticus 23. On this day, seven-day festival, make booths and live in them for seven days. And man, with that annual feast of booths that the Jews had celebrated for a long time, 
With that Feast of Booths, the Jews were celebrating their past exodus out of Egypt. They were celebrating their past exodus out of exile in Egypt. Back in the book of Exodus, the Jews had been in captivity in Egypt. But God then saved them. And man, once the Jews were out of Egypt and they were now in the the wilderness, they had to live in temporary shelters, booths as they passed through the wilderness. And after God saved them from Egypt, He told them, Leviticus 23, to celebrate this annual feast. Live in temporary shelters for seven days once a year. And that would be a celebration of their past exodus out of exile in Egypt. So these fathers here, they find in God's law now that they're supposed to do this with the Feast of of Booths, and they go and do it. Verse 17 says, all the people, and notice what Nehemiah says there in verse 17. All the people who had came out of captivity made these booths, and then on the 15th of the month lived in them for seven days. Man, you just picture this Feast of Booths now. I keep saying Feast of Booths. Okay, that would be sad. And this was a, day, this was a week of rejoicing. Feast of Booths. Uh, <clears throat> just imagine the sadness in this era. <laughs> God help me. Imagine the joy in this festival. Uh, I'm going on sabbatical, and I need it. <laughs> I don't know the difference between sorrow and joy. That's when you take your sabbatical. Oh, my word. So, just picture now, as these people, they were grieving on the first day of Tishri, and now here they are, the 15th through the 21st, and they're, they're having this feast of booths. And there was a lot of joy here. Can you imagine how fun this thing would have been for kids? I mean, throughout Jewish history, are you joking? You know, we get a tent and we're going to sleep outside and we're we're never really going to (laughs) sleep. And there's bugs and there's mosquitoes. Man, what kid wouldn't have liked this thing? But it wasn't just the kids who liked it on this occasion. They all did. There was a very great rejoicing. You can see it down in, in the verse there. I don't have it right in front of me. I've messed up my Bible now. Time for sabbatical. But after they celebrated the Feast of Booths, it says there was a great rejoicing in in the people. And man, it's crazy. These people have now moved here from sorrow over to, to massive joy and rejoicing. As they celebrate here now their past exodus out of captivity in Egypt. But you know what? Their joy here is they're celebrating. You know, as they, they find in the Word about this Feast of Booths and then they celebrate this thing and they're celebrating their past exodus out of Egypt. I don't think that's the only thing they were celebrating. No, I think these people in Jerusalem right here, as they saw it in the Word, celebrating this past exodus out of Egypt, as they start to do it, it dawns on them. God just did that again. God just did that again. Yes, He, he, he delivered our, our ancestors from, from exile back in Egypt. But, but God just delivered us again from exile in Babylon. 
And that's why Nehemiah says there, all the people who had been delivered from captivity, they celebrated this feast of booths and they all found great rejoicing. I think the dots were connecting for them. Yes, God did it in the past, but God just did it again with us. A second exodus. A second exodus. And I think what they were beginning to realize right here as they're celebrating this Feast of Booths, it is right and good for us now to grieve our sin because we sinned against God grievously. But man, we cannot grieve forever because God is merciful. And look what God did to us. We sinned when God released, when God released the people initially from Egypt and brought them out. Well, the people sinned against God, sinned against his laws. He sent them back into exile. But because God is merciful, even in, in spite of their sin, he pulled them back out of captivity. And I think it's dawning on them. Yes, we are, we are sinners. We are really, really bad sinners. But God is incredibly merciful. I think this right here was probably the best Feast of Booths ever. (laughs) They're celebrating not just a first exodus out of captivity, but a second exodus out of captivity. And Ezra, man, he wants these people here to focus now on God's mercy. He wants them to rejoice in God's mercy. Look again at verse 10. He says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yes, people's right to grieve our sins. Yes, but don't grieve forever because God has been merciful. Look where we are right here. Let's grieve for our sin, but let's rejoice even more for God's mercy. For it's in that joy and God's mercy that that right there, that will be our strength. And you know how it goes. Sorrow drains you. It takes all the strength out of you over time. You don't, you don't have appetite to eat. You don't have appetite to do anything. And a people who's always sorrowful that has no strength. Ezra's like, focus on the mercy of the Lord. Focus, rejoice, because that joy will be fuel, will be strength. You know how it is. When, you, when your heart is happy, you could run through a brick wall. I could run through a marathon, and I don't run marathons. <laughs> when your heart is happy, you have strength. And strength comes from focusing ultimately on the mercy of God. So, man, these people, they move from sorrow to joy, grief to gladness. And you know what? All of that really came from God's Word. It all did. When you put everything in this passage together, this, I believe, is what just happened. God wanted to revive these people. He wanted to breathe new life into them. So what did he do? He brought them into his word, had the scriptures proclaimed to them, and they saw two things clearly in the word. Number one, they saw their sin. And they sorrowed over their sin, and rightly so. But these people also saw God's mercy in the Bible. As they looked at this Feast of Booths in the Bible and then began to celebrate it, they realized God is very merciful in spite of our sin. And as they focused on that mercy of God, they began to rejoice from sorrow to joy, from grief to gladness. And please listen, if you need a revival in your life, and we all do, 
We all need new spiritual life. It's possible you don't have spiritual life at all. And you need spiritual life. If you need that from God, guess what? You can find it right here in the Word of God. And listen, if you already have spiritual life, but you need more, you're complacent right now, you're going to find that in the Word of God. But please be careful. I think this scripture, I think this thing's saying here, because when you truly go to the Word, begin to read it, begin to hear it, hear it preached, when you begin to understand it, it will cause two different things in your heart. One, sorrow as you see your sin. You should see your sin, and that will lead you to repentance. But another thing that you should see in the Word of God here is mercy. The incredible mercy of God. And when you see the mercy of God, it fills your heart with joy. Do you realize what you see in this entire Bible when when you read it? Do you realize what you see? You see a greater ultimate exodus. Do you know that? These two, this, this, this first exodus of the people coming out of Egypt, the second exodus of the people coming out of Babylon, well, these guys are celebrating these things here in this, on this occasion. But you know both of those things, that first and second exodus, they just point to a much better exodus that would come later. The Bible says that because of our sin, we sold ourselves into captivity, slavery to sin and death. And you cannot get out of that captivity on your own. You're captive just waiting for God's eternal punishment for your sin. You're in exile because of your sin, your violations of God's law. Here's the good news. God loved us and he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus Christ on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. Do you know what Jesus basically did on the cross? He stepped into our exile. He took our captivity to sin and death upon himself. He took the punishment for sin upon himself. He took our exile in order that we who were exiled might be set free. Might be set free. That's mercy. How do you receive that freedom from the Lord Jesus Christ? Very simple. You repent and believe. You're not saved just because you were baptized. You're not saved just because you go to church services. You're not saved just because you take the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. The Bible is very clear. You are saved if and when you repent and you trust in Christ. You must repent of your sin, turn away, cry out to God for mercy, and you must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ only in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. And the second you do that in your life, you're set free. You're forgiven of your sin and you are delivered from exile. You're free. And man, you see that in the Word of God, this incredible story of mercy. So yeah, you run into sorrow in the Word of God, but man, you also see mercy, the much better exodus. So man, may God help us to hide in the Word, and may God, may God spark a, a, a godly sorrow for sin in our hearts so that we would repent. But may God help us to see mercy. And may we trust in Christ and rejoice. And that joy will be strength in our souls. Lord, we thank you so much for your incredible word. You're so good to us, Lord God. We bless you for it. We thank you for it, Lord God. I pray you give us understanding in your word. You'd help us to hide in your word. Pray, Father, just for uh, your, your mercy in your word, Lord God. Help us to see our sin. Help us 
to see Jesus. Let us feel sorrow. Let us feel joy, Lord, in Christ. And uh, fill our hearts with rejoicing in Jesus, we pray. We thank you for it, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.